You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of thee I sing, baby. Hi, I'm Robert Schneider, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to Routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 6, the 1931 production of Of The I Sing. And with us today is the author of that chapter, Laura Francos. Laura is the author of the Broadway musical quiz book published by Applause Books in 2010. She is a regular contributor to CastAlbumReviews.com and previously authored a blog on unusual musical theater history, The Great White Wayback Machine. Her latest novel, Broadway Revival, has a time traveler curing George Gershwin's tumor and altering the course of Golden Age Broadway. I am excited to read that. And this makes Laura more than qualified to talk about the Gershwins and of the I Sing. Laura, I am so happy that you are joining us today. I am very thrilled to be here. I was It was an incredible honor to be uh, asked to partake in this. When I saw the lineup, I thought, wow, I'm playing with the uh, major leagues here. No, please. You, you are part of the major leagues. Uh, Laura, the first question that we ask all of our authors is what makes your musical of The I Sing a key musical? Well, I think there's a lot of things going for it. Uh, you have the Gershwin brothers, George and Ira, and they're at the peak of their musical comedy skills. They are working very closely with uh, their librettists, uh, George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskin, uh, two incredibly talented comedic geniuses. Uh, what they produced ended up being the longest running book show of the decade. It had a national tour, a second company in, in Chicago. It was the first American musical to have its libretto published in hardcover. Uh, it's the first pairing of uh, William Gaxton and uh, Victor Moore uh, playing the uh, romantic lead with a dash of mischief and his sort of inept buddy. Uh, they're kind of like Hope and Crosby before Hope and Crosby, and they'd go on to be in six other musicals after this one, uh, kind of, you know, st- great stage tradition getting started there. Uh, but first and foremost is of the I Sing is the first musical to win the Pulitzer Prize. And that distinguishes it from everything else. And the other question we ask all of our authors Mm -hmm. is, why did you want to tell the story of the I Sing? 
Why did I pick of the ice sake? Um, well, my favorite composer is Sondheim. My favorite show is Sweeney Todd. Why didn't I pick that? The reason I didn't, as much as I absolutely adore Sondheim and Sweeney Todd and company and all the other great shows he did, is because I have pretty much been steeping myself in 1930s Broadway for years. And that ties in with the book that you mentioned. Um, Broadway revival where I have a time traveler saving Gershwin and then sticking around with nearly a century and a half of musical theater history to come in his head and what does he do from that point on uh, so yeah uh, Gershwin obsessed here um, yeah when, when the, ni the 1930s and me <laughs> it's it seems like a natural fit now when yes. did uh, the music of George Gershwin enter your life or when did you realize that he belongs up there in the pantheon for you of somebody like a Stephen Sondheim. Oh gosh, uh, I've, I've always loved Gershwin um, from the time I mean my I get my love of science fiction from my dad and my love of, of musicals from my mom. And one of my earliest memories is looking into the great big stereo that we had that was a giant piece of furniture and looking down and seeing you know, the Columbia Masterworks go around and all the musicals uh, I was just in love with, but there was something about the Gershwin tunes that really, really stuck. Uh, I would say my you know, my 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 favorite my favorite Gershwin song is is they can't take that away from me, and that was something else that I loved with my mom was watch watching watching us all, all the movie musicals and seeing seeing you know Fred and Ginger introduce those songs. So the, I, the Gershwins and and luckily we we there George and Ira's music just does not seem to go away in the popular culture, which is wonderful. Nope. It's, it seems like every three years we get another Gershwin review or mm -hmm. a jukebox musical of some sort. Can you tell us a little bit about what was the career of George and Ira Gershwin like? And where are they in that career when Of The I Sing emerges? Well, as w is the case with a lot of the Golden Age songwriters, uh, they were either immigrants or sons of immigrants. In this case, uh, George and Ira's father was a Russian Jew who had come over and had a series of failed uh, businesses. They lived in a bunch of different places all over the city because as Papa Gershwin's business failed, they'd pack up and move somewhere else, presumably so the creditors wouldn't always find them. Um, George was attracted to music early. They actually got a piano that was supposed to be for Ira because he was he was the older son and George sat down and just started playing it and what they didn't realize is that he had been hanging out in a neighbor's house and learning to play their piano with their player piano and they just thought oh my gosh you know he's the one with the musical ability he gets he gets the lessons which was all right because Ira was even then gravitating towards towards words uh, obsessed with light verse uh, obsessed with with song lyrics even then. Uh, his high school buddy was a fellow named uh, Yip Harburg, who would go on to have a fantastic career. And they were both talking about how much they loved verse. And Harburg said, yeah, yeah, I really like like these, these verses here. And Ira said, oh, well, that's Gilbert and Sullivan. Don't you know the music? And Yip was like, what, there's music that goes with those fantastic <laughs> verses? Are you kidding me? And from that point on, they, you know, they sat and listened and listened and listened to that. Um, George quit school early, 
Uh, he became a song plugger at Tin Pan Alley. Uh, he started cutting his own player piano rolls, something he was very good at. A lot of them survive to this day. Those are fun. Uh, he started working as a rehearsal pianist uh, for a Ziegfeld show and getting some of his songs interpolated into, into early scores. And he's still, still just in his teens at this point. The tragic thing about Gershwin, and this is one of the things that led me to want to write my book, is that really we only have about 21 years of his professional career. And then he was gone. Uh, that, that's, that's really about all, all we got. Uh, you know, a couple, couple decades and we should have had so much more. But in those early days, uh, Ira wrote a few songs with him. And at that point, he kind of thought, oh, maybe George's career is going to take off. And so he took a pseudonym. He called himself Arthur Francis. Uh, Arthur and Francis being their brother and sister. So it was a, a, a family tie-in pseudonym. And Gershwin worked with a few other lyricists. Uh, Buddy De Silva would go on to have a fine career. And uh, he had a huge hit with Irving's uh, Caesar, a song called Swanee. Caesar had also written some, and De Silva had also written some songs for Jolson. And Jolson picked up that and it was a smash. The next big part in Gershwin's early career started in 1924. Um, this is, we've got him uh, doing the Rhapsody in Blue. Uh, we've got him doing shows that were taking off in uh, London at the time. And he teams up again with Ira. And from that point on, Ira is his, is his principal uh, co-writer, principal lyricist. And that's really where it kind of takes off because he it's it's as though with that with that 1924 show Lady Be Good you get Gershwin introducing the syncopated rhythms, the the jazz influences into a Broadway score and everybody went whoa what's that and the leads in that show were their good buddies uh, brother and sister duo Fred and Adele Astaire. Uh, years before, but back when they were just getting started. Uh, either Fred or George said to one another, wouldn't it be cool if you know you wrote a score and we could be in the, in the show? And yes, that is what happened. And from that point on, you know, they, they started doing musical comedy, something Ira was very good at. Ira, Ira did not like writing love songs. It, it made him uncomfortable. It made him you know, feel like squishy. Uh, he much preferred to be slightly satirical and, and comic. And I think Iris comic songs are among the best among the best ever written. And if you had to uh, imagine that somebody who's never heard anything in regards to musical theater whatsoever wanted an example, a prime example of George and Ira Gershwin's best work, what song would you hand that individual? Wow. That takes some thinking. And or on the flip side, maybe Ira's best work and George's best work might not be at the same time. So is there a, a lyric of Ira Gershwin's or a composition of George's that maybe could answer that question? It's such a great wealth of material. It's I, uh, I would be I, I think to, to go back to your first question, I, I think maybe Our Love is Here to Stay because that just has so much of, of the melodic beauty that, I, that George was capable of and it, it, it's, it's Ira doing, doing a love song and I don't think it comes off as, as, as sappy or uncomfortable at all. Um, I think 
one of the things that's utterly brilliant about the pair of them is that they they worked almost in a symbiotic fashion. They would generally the habit was for George to write the music and then Ira to fit it in. He described it as he's it, it's like working on a mosaic and he's fitting in the words to fit in the spaces in George's music and then the whole creates a picture. Uh, that's one of the things that was unusual about Of The I Sing because except for two songs, they operated the opposite way. They were operating from uh, Ira, Ira's lyrics first and then, and then George's music. Uh, but if you look at what they do in Porgy and Bess, and they're in collaboration with uh, DeBose and Dorothy Hayward. Uh, there's there's such a, an, an exquisite meshing of talents that one picks up on the on the others the other's strengths, and it it just it just creates a phenomenal whole. I, it, it creates a mosaic picture. Why do you think the work of the Gershwins is still with us almost a hundred years later, when their contemporaries' work? has become more and more obscure as time has gone on? Because um, they're so damn good. <laughs> that's, a, hey. that, that, that's, the, that's the easy answer, but, but I, I, I really do think uh, they, they, they are. They're just, they're just so good. Uh, there are places where I know people, including my idol, Stephen, Stephen Sondheim, have been, have been critical of Ira for being sloppy. You know, he also criticizes uh, Larry Hart for, for, for the same thing, for being sloppy. And I just want to go in a corner and cover my ears and go, la, 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 Stephen, not listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because the whole comes over so well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's now talk about how did the idea of the I Sing even come to fruition? Okay, um, of the I Sing came about because of an earlier failed political satire that the brothers had done working with uh, George S. Kaufman, who wrote the libretto. And that was called uh, Strike Up the Band. What happened was they sat down and they were going to do this show and it was going to be a satire of war profiteering, of jingoism, of, you know, excess patriotism. And they put together this show and Edgar Selwyn was the producer and it did not hold up in Philadelphia. It didn't hold up at all. The critics liked it, but the audiences were staying away and they were also having some cast problems at the time. And what happened then was it closed, but Selwyn said, you know what, if you want to go back to this material sometime and revise it, uh, I'm down with that. You can do that. Well, everybody separated to some various projects uh, and nothing came of it for a while. But then the Gershwin sat down and they were going to do it again. And this time Kaufman was was busy with other things. And he said, OK, here's here's this this young man out of Columbia, Maury Riskin. I worked with him on uh, Marx Brothers musical, um, Animal Crackers, and why don't you work it with him? And just go ahead and revise my material. I don't care what happens. So they did it. And again, Selwyn produced. And this time, the revised Strike Up the Band was a hit in 1930. But we have Ira and 
Kaufman at the back of the theater, and Kaufman is just unhappy with all of the revisions got, got made, even though he gave his blessing to it. And he said to Ira, he said, one of these days, I want to write a real political satire that isn't going to make any kind of concessions to anybody. And Ira said, what they ended up doing with of the icing, that was it. And they, Kaufman even said, if we have to produce this baby ourselves, we'll do it. Uh, but we're going to get it done. And so they came up with the idea that they were going to tackle political parties. And the initial idea was called Tweedledee because the differences between the two parties were like, you know, the, the twins in, in uh, Alice in Wonderland, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, you can't tell them apart. And the conflict was going to be over a new national anthem. And that's how we get the Gershwin brothers in because George was going to write two competing national anthems. And then the end of the first act was gonna be this huge big number where they'd be playing counterpoint. Well, Kaufman and Maury Riskin who was working with him on this, they soon realized that this was not going to be enough to make a whole musical that as Kaufman didn't like, didn't like love songs interrupting his shows any more than Ira Gershwin liked writing them. They, they realized there was going to have to be some romance in here. So they said, okay, how can we get romance in here? And they came up with the notion that they were going to have a political candidate who was running on a platform of love. And the Gershwins at this time were out in Hollywood working on some films. And so they, Riskin and Kaufman sent this long scenario and they said, we want a love song that's going to sweep the country. And sure enough, that's what, that's what the brothers turned out. The first song is that they wrote were the title song of the I Sing and Love is Sweeping the Country. And those were the first two songs that were written the usual way the Gershwins worked with George doing the music first and then I were chiming in. But from that point on, Ira took the outline, the scenario, the long scenario that, that Kaufman and Riskin had sent and he developed a whole bunch of songs and Gershwin George was the one who wrote the music to the songs that, that Ira had done. That's pretty much the way they worked. And it was extremely tied to the plot. Uh, George did get in, there were long segments where there was, there was no, no music, uh, no songs at all, but there was a lot of underscoring. And George was using pastiche. He was using musical quotes. There was there's there's a there's a lot of humor just in list looking at uh, listening to the the underscoring that that he chose. So they decided they're going to do that. And this is a very very odd show. And they did get a producer for it. They got um, Sam Harris, who had done uh, Kaufman's shows with the the Marx Brothers, Coconuts and uh, and Animal Crackers. And he Harris said afterwards he realized. We got the depression, it's hitting Broadway really hard. If theater on Broadway is gonna survive, it's gonna to have to be novel. And sure enough, this show was novel. In fact, when he saw what it is, he said, well, that's different. And it was. So they put the show together really quickly. And one of the things that George said was when it debuted on tryouts in Boston, it, it was it was a, a smash. There was very little that they had to do afterwards. It was it was clear it was going to be a huge hit. In fact, one of the few areas that ended up being a, a bit of a, a a bump in the road was Kaufman did not like the title song of the I Sing because it's of course of the I Sing. 
baby. And he felt that baby was just so slangy, especially since as it was, they were already kind, you know, kind of mocking national patriotic songs. And he, he, he wanted the, he wanted the brothers to throw it out and replace it with just an ordinary love song. And Ira and George said to him, they said, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll keep it in on the tryouts and we'll see what the audience thinks because they're the paying customers. And if they don't go for it, we'll do what you say, we'll rewrite it and we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do, we'll do whatever you want. Well, intermission, what, what are the, what's happening in, in the, in the lobby, all the audience members are going around and saying of the, I sing to each other. And it became a slang greeting of the time. In fact, Maury Riskin report, reports in his uh, memoirs that it was so popular that at Yankee Stadium, when Babe Ruth would hit a home run, the crowd would start singing of the I sing as the ball would you know, fly into the stands. So Kaufman, ha Kaufman had to give in a, on that one. They adopted the song. And from that point on, it was, it was a, a smash hit. And this was as I said, the Pulitzer. We'll get it. We'll get. We'll get. We'll get into that because that's that's the big thing about this show. But it also was one of the shows that they wrote a sequel for. Now, sequels do not generally work well on Broadway, and it didn't happen here. And the premise here was they were going to take the same characters. It was it was virtually the same cast: um, William Gaxton and Victor Moore again. Only this time, it was going to be the re-election campaign of John P. Wintergreen. And the sequel was called Let Them Eat Cake. And Iris said, in that case, they were trying to satirize, quote, practically everything. And it ended up being a great big mess and it flopped. Let me ask you, uh, going back a little bit, if I can, in terms sure. of satire, yes. what exactly did the authors want to satirize? Yes, there were political parties involved, uh, with the ideal of Tweedledee, but what do, what are they saying about political parties? Um, well, or the, trying to point out to people. Trying to point out um, the the premise of the icing is we don't just have a candidate who's running on a platform of love, but the gimmick, and there is a gimmick, is that there's going to be a beauty contest, and our presidential candidate John P. Wintergreen. The P stands for peppermint, according to George S. Kaufman. Uh, he is going to marry the winner of this be national beauty contest, Miss White House. So I think one of the things that Kaufman was really trying to get at there is just how much national politics are uh, involve the cult of personality, a popularity contest. Who, 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 who looks good? Who, who, who sounds good? Uh, and you've got that there. On the whole, even though he Kaufman said they didn't want to make concessions, the, the satirical element in of the icing is actually pretty tame. They don't. There aren't a lot of topical references in 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 the libretto at all, or in the lyrics. Uh, there was one joke about Coolidge, which they ended up cutting during the run after Coolidge died. That would not have been respectful. Uh, but there's there's not much. Uh, they they mentioned they mentioned then uh, presidential candidate Al Smith, uh, but there's there's not a whole lot there. It's it's more of a gentle spoof, and they're they're mocking they're mocking the parties in that they don't see them as having 
much difference between one another. In fact, the, the, the party that, that Wintergreen is part of is just the national party. There are no Democrats or Republicans specifically identified in the show itself. It's a, it's a gentle satire. Do you think that this sort of satire has now opened the door for more contemporary musicals? Uh, and are there any threads that we can draw from elements of, of the I Sing to anything that we're having today in musical theater? Uh, it, it was even back then. You, you had a following of the I Sing. You, you, you had a, a lot of shows in, in the 30s that were using satire to, to address uh, topical issues either in the more serious vein like of the of, of cradle will rock or or in in a more humorous vein uh, as in uh rogers and hearts i'd rather be right which actually had george m cohen playing fdr um george f kaufman famously has the the quip satire is what closes on saturday night I tried digging up the source for that. The earliest I could find that referenced that was was like late 1935. And even then it was saying oft quoted George F. Kaufman yeah. line. Satire is hard to do. Satire is hard to pull off. Uh, people have to understand what you're satiring, satirizing, how it, how it works and what your intent is. There is a lot of satire still on Broadway, uh, you've got Book of Mormon, you've got Six, you've got uh, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which I think is bloody bloody brilliant. It it has a home and it's always had a home, but it's the kind of thing that's hit or miss because it's it's difficult to do. It's dif it's difficult to pull off. Do you think there's a place for a VI sing in a contemporary commercial revival? Probably not, and. The reason for this is I think it's much too closely tied to Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh, interesting. And that's just a kind of musical mentality that was prevalent in the 30s. You look at young Yip Harburg and young Ira Gershwin sitting there listening listening to, to you know, Gilbert and Sullivan records and and being being utterly obsessed. Everybody knew it then, and that's very much what they were going for, both in the in the original strike up the band, and then in of the I sing. It's it's got it it it's patterned like a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, but with a very American theme. Mm. And I think that a lot of people today would find that off putting because they don't necessarily know where it's coming from, and it sounds quaint. You no, know, you the 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 back and forth with the with the chorus, you know, re re repeating the lines and uh, all all that. It just doesn't it doesn't come over as something familiar to today's audiences. I fear. Mm. Uh, have you seen any productions of it? Have I? No, I haven't. Aside from uh, aside from the there's there's the, the abysmal 1972. Uh, version with uh, Carol O'Connor and Jack Guilford, and then the concert production from, I think, 87 um, with uh, Larry Kurt and, again, Jack Guilford play, playing Throttlebottom. So I have not I have not actually ever seen it live. 
I, I neither have I. I don't think I think we're we're in the majority in that one. Yep. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the the Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, okay. Prior to of the icing being the first musical to win the Pulitzer Prize, uh, some of the authors who won Pulitzer Prizes include Eugene O'Neill, Sidney Howard, Elmer yep. Rice. These are people of uh, great substance. Their plays are very substantial and dramatic. Why did of the I sing get in there? How did it compete with Eugene O'Neill and Elmer Rice? Uh, how did it compete? It competed because it was so damn intelligent and coherent that it made everybody sit up and pay attention. When they first started giving out the Pulitzers. Uh, they included one for drama. It was specifically supposed to be for a play that reflected an American theme. Well, you can't get any more American than presidential politics now, can you? Uh, the award is administered by Columbia University. So you have a committee and the committee consisted of two academics and one playwright. And when they made the announcement that they were giving it to of the I Sing, they completely stunned the theatrical world because people just didn't think of musicals as high drama. Uh, musicals were considered like one step up from minstrelsy or burlesque. That's that's a quote from, from one reporter that I ran across. Uh, it's something that was inane that was incoherent that was that it was fluff it was fun well this was fluff and it was fun but there's a great deal of thought behind it there's a great deal of intelligence and it's a completely integrated score yeah there were a couple of tunes that 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 they were able to pull out that became that became hit songs but most of the numbers in of the i sing are so deeply connected to the plot that you can't you can't pull them out you can't pull them out of context and the committee the pulitzer committee felt they had to defend themselves and so they issued a statement saying why they made this unusual choice because they knew they were going to get flack and boy did they get flack and I, I i i like to read part of it because i think it's it it exemplifies what was unique about of the i sing so they say our choice is unusual but the play is unusual not only is it coherent and well knit enough to um class as a play aside from the music aside from the music oi <laughs> But it is a biting and true satire of politics and the political attitude toward them. It may well be this play will influence our stage as much as the beggar's opera influenced the 18th century stage and Gilbert and Sullivan that of our fathers. The award will have an excellent effect on future productions, helping to rise the tone of popular musical comedies. So they were recognizing of the I Sing as a landmark that they hoped others shows in the future would follow. And while we have a huge backlash, I mean, the, the, the announcement was on the front page of the New York Times. They gave the Pulitzer to a musical. Um, what happened was all of those naysayers who were saying, 
oh, this is cheapening the award. This is lessening the value of the Pulitzer. How could they do this? They're, they're, you know, they're giddy. They're, they're insane. Uh, the, the losers, which included people like Eugene O'Neill for Morning Becomes Electra and uh, Robert E. Sherwood for um, a reunion in Vienna. They should protest. They should stage a protest. But even in those articles where they're criticizing this choice, every one of those naysayers acknowledged the intelligence, the thought that went into making of the icing. So even though they could tell, yeah, okay, this is amazing. They didn't think it should get a Pulitzer, but they recognized it as something definitely out of the ordinary. And one of the things I find fascinating about this, did every single person who contributed to the writing of the icing get uh, honored? No, as as the committee said, aside from the music, you can class this as a play. Uh, so no, they left George off. They awarded the Pulitzer Prize $1,000 to Ira for the lyrics and to Kaufman and Riskin for the libretto. And they divided the thousand dollars among the three of them and Kaufman took the extra penny because he was the oldest but they didn't want to take it they were they were they were furious that George was dismissed and George said no you should take it anyway and here's what they ended up doing with it Kaufman donated his entire portion to a theatrical charity um Ira hung his certificate on the bathroom door and Maury Maury Riskin he got the greatest revenge of all Maury Riskin, as I said before, had been a student at Columbia University, but just before he graduated, he got expelled. Why did he get expelled? Because the president of Columbia University, Nicholas Murray Butler, was incensed by a satirical piece that Riskin had written for the school newspaper. He was complaining because Butler had refused to allow Leo Tolstoy's nephew to come and speak. And so he wrote this satirical piece where he called Butler Tsar Nicholas. And Butler said, you're out of here, kid. You don't get your diploma. You're expelled. He has to hand the Pulitzer certificate to Maury Riskin. And Riskin reported, he said, Butler could not make eye contact with me. <laughs> he just refused to look at me. He just handed me the certificate and off I went. So, yeah. Did, did the committee ever make it up to George Gershwin? I, I know that he didn't have a lot of time to do it because he passed, but did they ever try to make amends? No, what they did was later later in in uh, in in life, I think on his centenary, they gave they 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 awarded him a posthumous citation. Oh. They awarded him a posthumous citation. Uh. And even though of the I Sing was the first musical to win the Pulitzer Prize, not many other musicals have won the Pulitzer Prize. Nope, uh, only nine others. It kind of averages out to about one per decade. And do and you, I was, I'm so sorry, uh, go ahead, please, no, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, no, you go ahead. I was just gonna ask, do you see any elements of the I Sing in any of the other uh, musicals that won the Pulitzer Prize? Oh, definitely, Prize? definitely. Yeah. The, the 1960 winner was Fiorello and the 2016 winner was Hamilton and both of those are political-based uh, shows. And 1962, uh, How to Succeed won, and that's probably the greatest satirical musical of all time. Uh, and I think there's definitely a bit of, of the Icing's DNA in, in, the, in that show. 
And let's talk a little bit about uh, two names that are sort of getting lost in musical theater history, and that's Gaxon and Moore. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what they might have been like on stage and a little bit more about their careers? Okay. Well, Gaxton was hired uh, because they wanted somebody who would look charming and have a bit of sex appeal. And Kaufman was like, well, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know from, from that, but uh, okay, Harris recommends this guy, so, so let, let, let's, ha let's have him. And Moore, on the other hand, had already had a history with the Gershwins. He had played very much the same kind of bumbling character as Alexander Throttlebottom, the, uh, the vice president that, whose name everyone forgets, whose face everyone forgets. He had played those kinds of characters in, in a couple of previous Gershwin shows. And in fact, would that that would that was his forte? I mean, he had that that just exactly the sort of character he would play. Uh, they played off one another really well because Gaxton's characters always had a little bit of a dangerous flair to them, a little bit of mischief. Uh, definitely, he he was not merely just a, a a handsome leading man. There there was a there was a lot of humor there, and they just bounced off one another brilliantly. And after of the I Sing and the failed sequel, Let Them Eat Cake, uh, they paired up again in Anything Goes. They paired up again for another Cole Porter show in Leave It to Me. They were in uh, Louisiana Purchase with uh, um, Irving Berlin and, and, and a couple of other flops. But they really were Hope and Crosby before Hope and Crosby. It's, it's that exact kind of comic pairing, uh, right, 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 right down to you know, Moore's characters always sort of wistfully wishing that they that that he got the girl <laughs> would you say in some way it's it's sort of like a nathan lane matthew broderick type situation where they, they get paired a lot on stage or a totally different analogy there's something to that uh because uh, you know, both pairs they, they they've got they've got the comic chops and and you need it to pull off something like that you you need you need the timing uh you 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 need you need that kind of flair. Uh, I don't think Broderick's characters are necessarily as bumbling as Moore's always tended to be. Uh, Leo Leo Bloom and the producers. He's good at being an accountant. Yes, yes. <laughs> he may not have a lot of other skills, but he he's good at that. Is there anything in the text of, of the I Sing that still in 2021, when we're recording this, still feels could be quite relevant? Obviously, the role of the vice president has changed a little bit uh, is, is since this. Oh, is yeah, there, there, def there definitely is. Because I, 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 was, I was looking over it again to, in preparation for, for our, our, our little chat here. And there's one point where Throttlebottom and Wintergreen are talking, and Wintergreen says, "Oh, um, you know, if if I if I'm impeached, and 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 you you have to be, you're the vice president, you have to take over when the president can't fulfill his duties. Uh, so you'd take over. It's a good thing. I'm I'm working on a book. I'm working on a book called a uh, a." a a young person's guide to the presidency, something like that. And he says, of course, the first four years are pretty easy. 
because all you do is run for re-election. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is 1931, but it's still totally relevant. Oh, God, yes. Now, one of the things I did not know until I was reading your chapter was that the Marx Brothers had looked at adapting this into a film. That was kicked around, but it was clearly not a Marx Brothers production. Uh, it's it's their stuff was specifically written for their characters, and it would be really hard to try to figure out how to interpolate the chaos of the brothers into this scenario. There were a couple other times that there was the possibility of doing a film. In fact, once with Hope and Crosby, ah. uh, that was that 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 pretty much uh, failed. Uh, also in uh, in the forties with. Uh, uh, Fred Allen and Jack Benny, and that was kind of derailed by the war. It just wasn't going to come about, so it it, it never it never happened. Was there any sort of criticism uh, about the show when it first premiered? As people saying this is un-American, this is uh, mocking our American foundation, our our system of government, or did everyone pretty much go, yeah, I recognize this? That was actually a little bit of a concern, uh, both to the creators and to uh, the the people involved. There was one exchange that Gaxton and Moore reported, like, do you think we'll get arrested for this? Gaxton says, and Moore says, I don't know. Some people take the you know the dignities of high office uh, pretty seriously. Right from the get-go, all of the politicians were just totally on board with mm. this. Um, Mayor Jimmy Walker was, in fact, the model for the character of Wintergreen. Oh, and wow. he was there at opening night and loved it. Um, New York Senator Robert Wagner was there. Uh, the governor of New Jersey was there. Uh, FDR saw it later and loved it. He sent Gaxton an autographed picture. <laughs> And uh, and and said he was. The, remember, this is he's still a candidate at this point. Um, uh, and he said that he was going to uh, make Throttlebottom his uh, his his running mate. Uh, yeah, uh, they 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 loved it. They loved it. And but they, they but they were worried. But the politicians loved it. Great. And you know, if someone were to open up a dictionary today, I believe. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how it entered? Yes. The dictionary? Uh, it, we, we don't we don't have a whole lot of cases where where you could specifically say that uh, Broadway musicals have uh, contributed to the English language, but throttle bottom is now a term for an inept, bumbling, not very good politician. <laughs> so. There's some people thought that John Nance Gardner, who was one of FDR's uh, vice presidents was the basis for Throttle Bottom. That's not exactly correct, but uh, Garner is the one who said about the vice presidency that it wasn't worth a warm bucket of spit is the word that's usually used, but that's not what he said originally. He said something else, not worth a warm bucket of mm -hmm. fill in the blank. Yes, fill in the blank. Now, you had alluded earlier to the, uh, I believe, 1972-71 production of, uh, of The Icing, which was televised, mm -hmm. um, which is, you can see it on YouTube, and listeners, mm -hmm. there, we have a link to it if, if you want to watch it, but Laura, should we, should we venture in? No, I don't think so. Okay, great. <laughs> I, 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 am, I, am, I am not a fan. There's, it's, 
it's altered in some ways. Uh, they didn't have at that point, uh, the original orchestrations had been lost. And mm. so they resurrected some of them when they did the 1952 revival, um, that, that they found more of them later. And that's what was used in the uh, 87 production, I believe. Mm. So it doesn't quite, the 72 one doesn't sour. And I, I just, I love Carol O'Connor, but I don't think he's Wintergreen. That no. was a big that was a big thing for CBS. They were going, look, look, Archie Bunker is running for president. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw some ads that 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 was that was on that yeah. marketing train. Yeah. I'm surprised with all the influx of Gershwin jukebox musicals that we've had over the past 30 years that nobody has attempted to take this show, which is still content the, the themes of it are yeah. contemporary and relevant, especially the idea of having a beauty contest, which mm -hmm. in a lot of ways parallels our obsession with reality television today. Yeah. And not trying to bring this show into the 21st century with using other Gershwin songs and stuff like that. Do you know if anyone's ever tried to attempt anything like that? Not that I'd heard. Not that I'd heard. I think it would, it would take some doing. Yeah, and then you start fiddling with a great book. Um, yeah. And I, you know, it's so funny. I was rereading the script a couple of days ago and still laugh out loud at it. Yes. Um, so it's, it's, I think there's, an, unfortunately, uh, maybe they knew this, but in a hundred years, it's not going to be that different. <laughs> so bl bless the Gershwins, Gershwins for being so prescient and being, being mm -hmm. able to, to, to see that things yeah. were not going to change. Uh, Laura, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank yeah. you so, so much for, for talking with us today. Uh, the chapter is absolutely fantastic. And I can't wait to read your book, uh, Broadway Revival. Mm -hmm. uh, when does it uh, come out? Um, well, right now I am talking with a cover artist. Amazing. So once, Amazing. once we get the cover artist, uh, then we will, we will go from there, but I'm hoping it could be out by the end of 2021, but more likely early 2022. I love that. And is your blog still active? The great white no, way no, back machine. I'm, I'm so curious. Uh, it's, I know it covered unusual musical theater history. Can you give us some examples of unmute, unusual musical theater history? Um, okay, like I became obsessed with cows in musicals. Okay. <laughs> I'm now, now I'm trying uh, to think how many, I mean, I can think of Caroline from Gypsy. Yes, That's the first yes. one that comes to mind for yes, me. Yes, definitely. Uh, there's uh, Milky White and Into yes, the Woods. Yes. Okay. Uh, 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 this is this is a tradition that goes goes back to the to the 19th century, and there would be uh, a, a, a dance dancing cow in in in, in early shows then, and this was recycled again when uh, we had the 1903-1904 first musical version of The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy did not have a uh, little dog that accompanied her, but no, there was a cow. <laughs> You learn something new every day. You came here for a the I sing and you got some Wizard of Oz trivia. So this is great. Laura, thank you so much for joining us oh, today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about Of The Icing, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert Schneider, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.